Now on News Talk as part of our autumn season of documentary on News Talk, as the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall is remembered, producer Simon Tierney investigates the Irish connection with East Germany and explores what it was like to live in one of the most guarded and restrictive countries in the world, in Behind the Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So, an extraordinary night of euphoria in Berlin. Within hours of East Germany's decision to let its people go by opening the border to the west, the city erupted in a frenzy of celebration. Of course, is in East Berlin, and the sound that you hear and what you're seeing tonight not hammers and sickles, but hammers and chisels as young people take down this wall bit by bit. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. And I left my car in East Berlin, walked through, and there were thousands of whispers in this thing. It's freedom, the wall's down. You know, it was a very, very emotional moment, I must say. We found it hard to, to believe initially, um, you know, that uh, the, the wall was open and, and people could go back and forth and, and so I on. I remember that I first saw huge neon advertising signs and a sea of them, colorful lights and lots of cars. Twenty-five years ago this month, the Berlin Wall opened its border, allowing the first free movement of German citizens in 27 years. The wall was an iconic symbol of the separation of two worlds, the capitalist West and the communist East. But what was the Irish connection? This is the story of four men and women who were affected by everything the wall symbolised. Four men and women who either grew up in East Germany and moved to Ireland, or grew up in Ireland and moved to East Germany. And what it was like to live in one of the most guarded and restrictive countries in the world. On November the 9th, 1989, an unprecedented statement was issued by East German spokesman Gunter Schabowski. Therefore, we have decided to introduce a bill today. Which allows every citizen to travel out of East Germany. By way of the border crossing points. When does it come into force? As far as I'm aware, immediately. Straight away. My name is Peter Miller. Um, I was born in Bangor County Down in 1955 and... I was in East Germany first for Reuters news agency and then subsequently for the Sunday Times. 
Shabowski was was he's getting on a bit. He didn't know what he was talking about. The the Politburo met, and they had obviously taken a decision, which. It, History is very vague on this because the people in charge were very vague on it. They had taken the decision to allow East Germans greater freedom of travel to the West, limited greater freedom, and that included uh, the ability to go and visit friends. Up until then, no East German had been allowed to go West unless they were pensioners or unemployed or unemployable. But they, he said that night, no, we will allow certain East Germans to travel. And what they really meant was, of course, that they would make it possible, but they weren't allowing whole families. They were intending quite clearly to let um, a husband or a wife or perhaps children go, but not the whole family. Nothing where there would be a risk of them all staying in the West. But they didn't express this. The, the law hadn't been formulated. And Shabosi came on and said, well, we're going to allow greater freedom of travel to the West. And we're going to allow people to go out and visit relatives and go to Western Germany. And he was asked, you know, well, does that include West Berlin? And he sort of thought a minute and said, well, yes. And then he said, well, when does it come into effect? And he said, well, now. But he didn't really know. Nobody had been told about this, that the war came down because of a series of accidents. As soon as he said this, it wasn't even widely reported on East German radio, but West Berlin picked it up and broadcasted it all over the networks, and all East Germans listened to West German radio. So within an hour, 10,000 people had gathered at the checkpoints in West Berlin. My name is Henrike Rau. I was born in 1977 in Radebeul in East Germany, which is very near Dresden. I came here initially because I, um, I got a stipend um, from, from the German Scholarship Foundation um, to study abroad for one year, and uh, it was for, for an English-speaking country. And uh, because I, I kind of found Ireland quite interesting, and I liked Ireland when I, when I went on holidays here two years earlier, I came back here in 1997. Well, I moved to, I was at the rather tender age of 25, I was uh, sent to East Germany in 1981, um, having grown up in, in, in Bangor, Northern Ireland, and um, I joined Reuters news agency, and at the time I was the only non-German uh, correspondent in the GDR. Uh, so it was quite exciting, and I, I had a fairly distinguished uh, list of predecessors. Christa Maria Lerm Hayes, a former East German citizen, who eventually moved to Ireland. I was eight uh, when my family and I left Jena in East Germany and moved to West Berlin. I experienced my childhood as quite a warm time. My parents didn't get on particularly well, but uh, then there were lots of uncles and aunts. And uh, during the week, of course, we were living in Jena, which is a, a city not terribly big city, but um, pollution was quite strong and cities just did look grey at the time. But as a child, and if you haven't seen anything else, you didn't notice that necessarily. The GDR was, for a start, everybody had to um, pretend that they they greatly loved the Soviet Union. Um, If you were an East Berliner, you could not travel uh, anywhere other than inside the GDR or with visas because they were required even within the Warsaw Pact. You had to get permission. As an East German, you had to put up with the fact that probably your friends, some people you knew, worked for the Stasi that were actually in the pay directly or indirectly of the secret police. I was aware um, that we couldn't really say everything we just wanted to to our schoolmates and also that we couldn't travel everywhere we wanted to. 
For example, we were on a local train through beautiful landscape of Thuringia, and uh, there were um, two um, little hills on the left and one on the right, and they were uh, called um, die drei gleichen, the, the three um, sort of same-looking uh, mountains. And um, so I was told that this was a lovely area and so on, and I admired the landscape and said, oh, and is this the big wide world? And everybody was, of course, laughing and so on. So you didn't get that joke explained on the train. <laughs> so the big wide world was obviously something that was talked about in my family. And in particular, we had a map of London, a 19th century map or turn of the 20th century map mounted on fabric um, and uh, that my mother had bought just as the wall was being built in 1961 and she was just about to start um, to study. Therefore, she wanted to have something to remind her of the places she would not be able to see in her lifetime anymore. That was very clear that she would not um, be able to, to travel outside of the Eastern Bloc. I, I was very aware of, of the political conditions, and I remember, for example, some of the um, elections, uh, in particular at the local level, and how contentious they were when people started talking about, um, you know, the, the unrealistic percentages that were uh, basically broadcast for, for the, the SED party and so on. My name is Anne Schneider, and I'm the daughter of Elizabeth Shaw. Elizabeth Shaw, the only deceased member of our story, yet the most famous. Shaw eventually became the most celebrated children's author in East Germany. The most famous book, her children's book called uh, The Timid Rabbit, Der Kleine Angsthase. It was 50 years, Der Kleine Angsthase, last year. In the GDR, it was when they found out that it was very popular, they so were able to have editions like sort of 10,000 or even more. They had one edition after the other. Fergal Lenehan of Friedrich Schiller University in Jena. Elizabeth was born in 1920 in York Street in Belfast. Uh, she was actually born over the Ulster Bank. Her father was a uh, manager of the Ulster Bank in York Street uh, and was originally from County Sligo. They had a very sort of bourgeois, um, upper middle class existence and were sort of remote really from, from working class culture. A big influence upon Elizabeth's early background was definitely her schooling Okay, in the Belfast Royal Academy, um, which she, she went to from the age of four in 1924 to the age of 13 in 1933. Within Elizabeth's autobiography, she, she talks about her whole class singing O'Donnell Labou and the irony of this happening in, in a Protestant area and on a Protestant street. Uh, we had to sing all sorts of uh, uh, songs, I suppose, and a lot of them were quite political. And, um, well, obviously, the, the national anthem was, was one, one example. We had kind of partisan songs, things like that. You know, a lot, a couple, like I, I went to a school where we uh, learned Russian from, the, from third grade onwards. Um, so we sang a lot of Russian songs as well. It was quite a paramilitary sort of an education. They had somehow figured out that I was the class best or representative or somebody like that. So I had to make a military salute to the teacher every morning. 
and then um, turn 90 degrees, click my heels together and um, admonish anyone who, who might have moved. You know, all the other children had to stand beside their little desks as well. I suppose uh, another thing I'd mention here is, is the whole um, idea of youth organisations. Uh, that was a very sort of strong feature of, of, of school life, that, you know, children in the GDR obviously were in, in various organisations, you know, Pioneer, FDJ, etc. It was uh, partly about sort of... Um, instilling a certain sense of, you know, belonging to a socialist system in, in kids, but also it was about organizing group activities. I mean, I remember, um, uh, you know, in school there was activities like, um, you know, collecting old newspapers and bottles and so on and so forth uh, for sort of resource recovery, if you like, recycling. But, of course, there's also always very strong kind of political undertones, and uh, I'm, I'm under no illusions now. Of course, these organizations were used to kind of, you know, sort of train children to become good citizens in a, in a communist country. So. Diese Organisation wird Freie Deutsche Jugend genannt. Aber die jungen Leute im Alter von 14 bis 24 Jahren und ihre kleinen Brüder, die jungen Pioniere, im Alter von 6 bis 14 Jahren... I had friends in school, of course, and I wanted to invite some home. And, um, of course, you like to share the nice things you have with your guests and so on. So I um, put out some Western chocolate that we had received in a parcel. And she declined chocolate, saying that she didn't want anything from the class enemy. So she was a poor, indoctrinated child and already then knew that um, we as a family and her friend, I had a contact with the West. And she was believing, of course, in what she was being told, that that was bad. I remember, you know, getting visitors from the West, but also receiving parcels and uh, parcels that were full of, you know, coffee, chocolate, you know, maybe maybe second-hand clothes from cousins in the West, things like that. Anything that was in demand, rare, and people had to share and so on. What it brought with it was that people generally appreciated others who were able to mend and make and so on. And that was something, actually, that I remembered as very positive and remembered very well um, a society where where people did DIY and valued friendship and so on. And that I found in Ireland, especially in the west of Ireland, where my husband is from. In 1933, Elizabeth moved to Bedford outside of London, and then she went to London and studied at the Chelsea School of Art. Um, and she became involved in, firstly, in, in general sort of anti-fascist circles. She describes, in her autobiography at least, how... She became involved in a May demonstration in 1938, and it was a general sort of anti-fascist demonstration in support of the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. And some of her, her students who were dedicated communists uh, um, noticed her involvement in the march and then wanted to, to involve her in communist uh, circles. Okay, and chief among them was a man called Patrick Carpenter, and he actually became her, her first lover, her first boyfriend. Um, he influenced her greatly and uh, and brought her into the Hogarth Group, which was basically the uh, artist grouping within the British British Communist Party. Um, and he also got her got her some work doing caricatures for for the Daily Worker, the British the the newspaper of the British Communist Party. I think she sort of liked the idea of having a society which was a bit more equal, perhaps. Uh, 
a different kind of society as, as it was in, during that time. She met Rennie Gratz in 1943. Okay, she had sort of more or less broken up with Pat- Patrick Carpenter. He was actually uh, a convinced communist as well. Um, and they eventually married in 1944. Uh, and from the start, it was his plan, at least, to, to go to Germany after the war and to help in the rebuilding of, of German society. And I suppose from, from the present-day perspective and from a lot of perspectives, it, it was sort of a strange move to, um, to, to, to go to Berlin in 1946 and to specifically go to the Soviet sector. But they, I suppose they did it from, from, utopian, from a utopian idealist perspective. They wanted to go to, to Berlin and they wanted to, to help in the rebuilding of German society. And they definitely saw in, in the Soviet Union, they, they saw the Soviet Union as a symbol of hope, as a symbol um, for the establishment of, of a fairer society, of, of, a, of a non-bourgeois, non-class-oriented society at the end of the day. I moved in there really rather wet behind the ears journalistically and found a completely extraordinary society living beyond the Berlin Wall. I I have both Irish and British passports, but I I use my British passport to get a a trip over Berlin in a helicopter by by grace of the, um, the British Army in West Berlin. And of course it was very odd in itself because they were not allowed to fly over the border. Um, so they had to strictly keep flying over West Berlin, even though where I lived was in East Berlin. But even still to be up there and look down on the city and see the wall, you know, which many people think just, it just cut through Berlin, but of course it actually was a wall all the way around West Berlin. It was about 140 kilometers in length. And, and really looking down, it was like looking down on a very, very strange uh, vision of, of a jigsaw puzzle where one piece had been cut out from the whole picture. The four people in this story, Peter, Henrika, Christa Maria and Elizabeth, all spent large periods of their lives in this isolated communist sanctum, some of them in East Berlin, just a stone's throw away across a wall to the affluence and neon lights of the West Berlin Kudam. But what was life like for our four protagonists in a world in which the Socialist Unity Party attempted to control every aspect of its subjects' social, cultural and political lives. You're listening to Behind the Wall on News Talk 106 to 108. Life in East Germany was different for the four people in this story. Peter Miller had an Irish passport and was a journalist, enabling him to cross freely between East and West Berlin. Elizabeth Shaw, having grown up in Northern Ireland, had a British passport and therefore could enjoy foreign travel, a luxury which both Christa Maria Lerm Hayes and Henrika Rau were unable to avail of. East Germany was a country in which its government did everything in its power to prevent the leak of Western culture crossing its border. Sometimes, of course, this didn't work. 
and the West Germans and, and East Germans both listen to the same thing because you have to remember that um, radio and television uh, mostly came out of West Berlin and, and most East Germans could pick up the Western stations. They hardly listened at all to their own media, which was dominated by the Communist Party's broadcast and, and extremely dull. I remember distinctly, I mean, obviously it was, it was mostly the radio uh, that we that we listened to and uh, there was a kind of youth um station it was called uh, dt64 and uh, this was really uh, sort of what people my age i suppose listened to especially in sort of the late 1980s they used to play albums and you know it was still sort of the vinyl age so week week one you had you had the first side and then week two you have the you had the b side so a side and b side Eine halbe Stunde noch bis Mitternacht. Hier ist Rias 2 und hier ist Jugendradio DT64, Silvesterfeier in Ost- und in Westberlin. Live auf Rias 2. Uh, interestingly, I, I, the first um, big piece I wrote when I was there, when I arrived in 1981, it was the 20th anniversary of the building of the Berlin Wall. And it was just after Pink Floyd's All in All, You're Just Another Brick in the Wall came out. And that was obviously very, very popular. I, I remember vividly wandering around the, the streets of East Berlin in, in the August of 1981. Um, and in those days, it still looked like a bomb wreck. You know, there were, there were bullet holes and were from, from 1945 all across the, the buildings, buildings were pockmarked, shell holes, and courtyards uh, echoed with this song playing up. television but of course couldn't tell anyone uh, not everybody had a um, television in the households where there was a television you would gather around to to watch um, whatever it was with your whole family there was even a channel called uh, the, the black channel an east german program which tried to prove that everything that west german tv was broadcasting wasn't true but needless to say none of the native population believed it And of course, you had um, you had these programs on TV as well, where it's sort of basically, uh, you know, kind of propaganda for for a half an hour or so in the evening. But uh, we, we hardly ever watched that. Berlin, 1945. We were quite lucky in the sense that we had a lot of sort of smaller cinemas. They showed Snow White, The Seven Dwarfs, and it was a Disney production, I think, at one time. And I remember that was a huge hit and everyone wanted to go and see it. And uh, so I remember that distinctly. My home, my home is in One of the most glaring aspects of life in East Germany was the scarcity of consumer goods available to its citizens. Shopping in East Berlin was, was a 
curious thing. Um, as an ordinary East German, and, and we, we had sort of a, a double rights, as it were, because we also had access to the couple of shops which took hard currency, in other words, West German marks. But as an ordinary East Berliner, um, and my wife and I, and I got married while I lived there, and my wife came from the north of England, and um, we, we settled down there, and we found it very odd. The shop across the road, uh, the so-called supermarket, had a very small supply of meat. You could usually get something. It wasn't as bad as in Russia, but you usually get something. But it was only normally a, a very basic variety of pork. Uh, you could get a sausage. Uh, you couldn't exactly go in and buy a steak. There was nothing. There was no, there was nothing to be had that you could rely on. You just had to go in and take your luck with what the shop had. You'd often only have, uh, you know, one or two sort of brands and things like that, and you'd, you'd have the necessities, I suppose, but you don't have that much choice. I think one gets sort of used to uh, not having big variety one has now or in, in, in the western part of Europe. I don't think that was so very important. Important was their possibility to do their artistic um, work and have a family. Well, you couldn't necessarily call them supermarkets, could you? Um how shops or something like that they had shelves but very little on them and sometimes you could get this and sometimes you couldn't even sometimes you couldn't get toilet paper and you had to use the newspaper or something like that and tear it up and um, sometimes of course um, people did get oranges and uh, bananas and so on but as soon as word spread that something like that was available. Um, there were queues around the block, so you had to queue, and uh, shopping took uh, quite a lot of time sometimes. You know, having having chocolate from West Germany w was a big deal, so to speak, and uh, the same with coffee. I mean, we had coffee with chocolate, but uh, you, know, you, had, you had sort of di very big differences in quality, and I think it was more like the symbolic value of it as well. Uh, you know, to, to have chocolate from West Germany, I think, meant a lot to people, or have good coffee uh, from West Germany. So it was, I think it was more the symbolic value of it than the actual sort of value of the food. Or, you know, but there were big differences in quality as well. And there were certain things, of course, you, you couldn't really get uh, in East Germany. And uh, in, in some areas, it was really difficult to get spare parts or, uh, you know, to get really simple things like, you know, uh, that you needed in everyday life. I mean, ladies' tights was, was very popular to send tights, um, uh, especially like sort of in the 60s and 70s, maybe less so in the 80s. You know, clothing, certain types of clothing, and um, also, you know, things like to repair, um, you know, household appliances, Stuff like that. Ah, the names of the shops. Shop names had all been abolished. Um, the, the shop opposite us, which sells fruit and vegetables, was called Obstgemüse, which means fruit and vegetables. Um, <laughs> they, um, you would have a, a butcher shop would be called Meat. Um, the shop names were completely abolished. The uh, the big supermarket, the sort of the, the Harrods, if you like, of East Berlin, and that's a bit of a joke, had been Wertheim, had been owned by a Jewish family prior to the Second World War, and was now uh, called Warenhaus Zentrum, Central Warehouse. And that was where you went to if you wanted a, a choice, if you wanted to get something like a handkerchief, a pair of pants, a pair of stockings when they had them. That was the where you went. But um, all, all signs of them having previously been private property had been expunged. The most famous book 
Her Children's Book called uh, A Little Mid Rabbit, Der kleine Angsthase. And in East Germany, uh, it, it was published in, it was her first book, and it was published in 1963. So it was 50 years, Der kleine Angsthase, last year. Oh, the, the book was was an absolutely massive success. But from 1963 until 1982, um, there were 19 editions of the book within within the GDR. Okay, so that that tells you um, some extent of, of the the success of the book. It's become very much a staple of, in a lot of ways, of East, East German identity as sort of a follow-on, sort of quasi-regionist identity. In the GDR, when they found out that it was very popular, they so were able to have editions like sort of 10,000 or even more. They had one edition after the other. My mother had a, a, a very bad car accident in 1970 and was a pensioner at the age of 28 or something like that, or so it was classed, you know, so she received a small pension, but as a pensioner, um, you were allowed to travel to the West. The government's thinking was that, of course, if you were allowed to travel, you might not return, therefore the East German state could save pensions payments. There was um, huge old age poverty in East Germany. It was, it was really um, quite a, a scandal, and that was one of the ways in which the government tried to alleviate that. So my mother traveled to Bonn to see politicians and also traveled to Bishop. Um, she had studied theology, uh, Lutheran theology, and um, raised money from the politicians, from the church, and so on and was actually prepared to stay in the West in order for her family to follow her then uh, to um, get a reunification of a family uh, through somehow. But um, they convinced her that the money was good enough and that she could go back to her children and um, that they would basically buy us free. So this was benign human trafficking, if you will. I, I'm aware of one occasion where there was a discussion within the family to potentially leave because um, I suppose, you know, on the one hand it was the whole issue of, I suppose, political freedom. Uh, I think that was potentially more important to my parents than, say, things around sort of, you know, improving your your livelihoods or whatever material standing. Um, but, on the, but there was also, I remember there was an opportunity, I think, uh, for my parents to work abroad and uh, uh, for a short period of time. I think it was my father who was a, a hydro engineer and uh, there was discussions around that but uh, they decided in the end not to go and uh, the same applied to my to some of my close relatives they they all decided to stay but it got it got quite these debates got quite heated so my mother came back and we packed our boxes made long lists of all sorts of things that we had every single book and um, every item really how many dolls how many socks and all of that kind of thing and uh, with all that, with that list and everything packed and so on, we could apply to leave the country. And um, it took about three years or so for this to come through. And then within 
24 hours actually of getting the paperwork, we had to leave the jurisdiction. Life in East Germany was closely watched over by the Stasi, the state secret police. Their task? To root out the class enemy. How did this most infamous of organisations, with its intricate network of surveillance equipment, affect the lives of these four men and women? By 1989, the East German secret police, the Stasi, employed over 90,000 people. Their duty? To gather intelligence on every East German citizen and root out the so-called class enemy. The Stasi affected the lives of the four men and women at the centre of this story in different ways. I know my apartment was bugged. Um, we, when eventually after the wall came down uh, and the, the apartment was uh, renovated, they found 29 microphones in, in the walls. Um, we knew that at the time. We expected it. Uh, it's odd. I mean, you know, we were a newly married couple. It's very weird to think that somebody got microphones in your bedroom. But, I mean, that was, <laughs> that's up to them. And uh, you've ever seen the film Lives of Others? That was very like the situation we lived in. You didn't think about what whoever might be getting their jollies on a set of microphones upstairs. We weren't necessarily brought up to think of every neighbour as somebody bad or whatever, but we knew that... There were people, um, you know, you couldn't trust and so on. And of course, that poor friend with the chocolate was never invited back. I don't think that anyone ever pointed at a neighbor saying, oh, here she is with the Stasi. But we did move apartments at some stage, and um, it was clear somehow that the neighbor downstairs, um, you know, was listening in or wanted to overhear conversations in the staircase. A moving van came and friends and family helped. The um, police and Stasi uh, people were there to observe the whole thing, make sure that we didn't take anything valuable. The flat next door to us uh, was always locked, and we knew this was where where the secret police were. It was only after the wall came down I discovered that the pub downstairs had a secret spiral staircase at the back, and uh, the the Stasi went up the staircase and came into this flat, and there were banks of tape recorders in there. They had about half a dozen microphones in the bedroom, a dozen microphones in the office, microphones in the living room, microphones in the kitchen. They listened to everything we said, but... You know, the really strange thing about this is you get used to it. You know, it, it sounds like something again out of a James Bond movie, but you turn on the taps. You don't talk about things. You don't mention the names of East German friends because you don't want anyone to know. You say, oh, we're going to see, um, you know, the fat guy tonight. You wouldn't mention his name. Manner, lovely, lovely bloke, great friend of us. Um, we wouldn't mention the pub we usually went to. we just say, oh, are we going out this evening? And if you had something you needed to talk about, that you really wanted a bit of privacy for, you went out onto the street, you went, you stood in the middle of the trees in the avenue and, and you waited until traffic came back. It, it's extraordinary how quickly you get used to it, but it's quite frightening too. I, I don't, I think a lot of people um, had sort of experiences 
of maybe stasi activity in the in the workplace perhaps more so than at home i i don't think that our house was ever booked or that there was people parked outside this said we do have um, we do have close friends family friends who who have been who have been uh, well who who are aware of the fact that their house was booked that uh, you know they they were aware that they were being photographed and so on and so forth when i finally got hold of my stasi file in the 1990s I discovered that they had been regularly placing surveillance teams on me for anything up to two weeks at a time. And there's a wonderful record of one day when they sat outside our flat from six in the morning, not realizing that we'd been in the pub late at night and didn't get up until 10. Uh, they eventually trailed us when we left. It was a warm summer day in Berlin. And actually, even in the east, you know, the Berlin countryside is a wonderful grain fields, cold lakes, and things that West Berliners couldn't go to. But because we lived in the east, we could get out onto the countryside. So we took the car and we drove up north of the city, unaware that there was a static car following us, recording every minute, every turn we took. At one stage we got lost because I'm afraid, um, I don't want to be sexist here, but my wife was map reading and we took the wrong direction and we had to turn round and go back into town and take the motorway exit in the other direction. The Stasi, of course, thought this was some espionage um, manoeuvre to shake off the tail. We had no idea we had a tail. Uh, and eventually we found this nice little lake on the outskirts of town. And again, I had no idea that it was only a few kilometres from uh, the sealed compound in which the East German Communist Party leaders all lived. And the Stasi were there. They, they checked minute by minute. They put things like, uh, it is 242. My, my, code name, my code name was Streamer. My wife's code name was C. And they noted me carrying a basket to the side of the lake. They noticed me changing into my swimming shorts. They noticed me going to the lake and then quickly noticed I came out two minutes later. It was cold. You know, I'm not a German. I, I get, I'm an Irish lad. I get cold in cold water. And then, I, I, you know, they, they spotted us, everything we did. And when, when I put on my, put my uh, ordinary trousers back all over my swimming trunks because I couldn't be bothered to get changed, they tutted and tutted. And then we went back into town, and we went to the hard currency shop. We went in, we bought a few things. We bought some coffee, stuff you couldn't get in the East German shops. Bought some coffee, some oranges. You couldn't even get that in the hard currency shop regularly. And going away out to the car, I was twirling my keys, the car keys, around one finger. The wife was struggling with the bag. And as we got into the car, I had no idea about this until 10 years later, but the um, Stasi officer had seen, they'd taken a photograph of us with a camera this is real James Bond stuff, uh, hidden in the, the tail light of a little trabant parked outside. And ten years later, I found this photograph, and the Stasi officer commented, on shopping expeditions, Milo makes his wife carry the heavy objects. I can tell you, she's never let me live that one down. <laughs> And we went on the train from Jena to East Berlin. Only very close friends who were already known to the Stasi uh, dared to come to the train station with us and uh, wave goodbye. And uh, then we went to the one and only place to to get across the border in uh, Berlin and Friedrichstraße. Checkpoint Charlie was for foreigners and so on, so Friedrichstraße was the place where these kinds of things happened. So it was, it was really um, quite a, a hard-line time. It was the middle of the Cold War, and we were in this um, modernist building with a lot of glass 
on one side, and uh, there were cabins where they might have strip searched other people. And I remember with us, my sister and I, it was just that the, um, the police were looking through the list of the things um, that we have carried on us like one pair of sandals and one skirt and those kinds of things. But it was really very intimidating where you had to show your passport with sort of mirrored glass and um, they made it all uh, really clear who had the power there. On November the 9th, 1989, the border between East and West Germany opened for the first time in decades. It became a flood. And bizarrely, those of us who were based in East Berlin, we didn't believe it was happening. Uh, I met, I went over to West Berlin, I, I took a car, I'd been up on the Baltic coast, and I walked through Checkpoint Charlie. I knew the border guard. The border guard said, it's gone mad over there, mate. I'll look after your car for you. At this moment, we are taking you live to the Brandenburg Gate and the Berlin Wall, where hundreds of people have climbed on top of 15 feet of concrete to celebrate the triumph of 28 years of hope. Yeah, I walked into West Berlin that night, and people were tossing my hair and saying, welcome to freedom, mate, and putting a beer in my hand. <laughs> we, we didn't believe it. It was all a series of accidents. But once you'd let the, the trickle of people through the wall, the trickle became a flood. And suddenly there were reporters from from the USA, from from Western Europe, you know, from Ireland, from England, from Germany, Western Germany, flooding into Berlin and declaring the war was done. But nobody knew if that was true. I remember uh, what must have been from a platform of the Western Station that I first saw huge um, neon advertising signs and a sea of them, colourful lights and lots of cars and... Um, ads on the buildings and everything. It was a different world, a completely different world. You know, I remember it very well. It was a very, very emotional moment, I must say, uh, for my parents, uh, for the whole family. We, we watched uh, we watched TV because, uh, you know, people obviously started you know, talking about it uh, in the neighbourhood as well, and then we watched TV, and uh, we found it hard to, to believe initially, um, you know, that that uh, uh, the, the wall was open and, and people could go back and forth and so on. So it was very, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was quite an overwhelming experience in some ways. She, she died in 1992, and she sort of liked it very much, the changes after 1989, being able to talk about whatever you wanted to talk about, which openly was perhaps not always possible. And um, she was very glad uh, that um, the, um, we were able to travel after that. We went across the border, uh, and we, you know, you were able to collect some some money uh, because of the, the the arrangements between West Germany and East Germany. So we had a bit of money to to spend as well. And I remember spending the day in in West Berlin and feeling quite overwhelmed by by everything. I suppose um, in a sense that there's a lot of uh, shops and very you know brightly lit places and and a lot of uh, consumption. I suppose I wanted to go where my mother thought she could never go, of course, to London to study. So in a way, I fulfilled my mother's dreams and the dreams that were born when the wall was built, well before I was born. So um, I went to London and I had a 
wonderful year um, there studying, and I didn't find people there very friendly, but I found all the other foreigners and strange people <laughs> very um, nice and, and warm, and among them an Irishman. He came to Germany first to learn German, and he worked there for six years, and then eventually he said, well, he wanted to go home, and um, I thought, oh my God, I have to work in a, in a sort of a breadless academic um, discipline, and in a different language, and in a country without contacts. But okay, I'll try. And it was the best decision ever. I came here initially because I um, I got a stipend um, from from the German Scholarship Foundation um, to study abroad for one year, and uh, it was for for an English speaking country. And uh, because I, I kind of found Ireland quite interesting, and I liked Ireland when I when I went on holidays here two years earlier, I came back here in 1997. My mother had written in her her will that she wanted she wanted her ashes to be scattered in Ireland in the Irish Sea. I think she probably put that in after 1989 because before we would not have been able to do that. Elizabeth Shaw, a girl from Belfast, a giant of German children's literature. The Timid Rabbit remains a best-selling book in Germany today. Christa Maria Lerm-Hayes lived in Ireland for many years. She is now Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art History in the University of Amsterdam. After the fall of the wall, Peter Miller became deputy editor of The European. He continues to write for a number of major newspapers today and has written several successful books. Enrica Rao still lives in Ireland and is a lecturer in NUI Galway. And the Berlin Wall? Well, the wall is a memory now. 155 kilometres of memories. 28 years of memories. From the first brick being laid in August 1961 to the first brick being smashed to pieces in November Behind the Wall was produced, recorded and edited by Simon Tierney. To listen back to this or any other News Talk documentary, go to newstalk.com forward slash documentary on Newstalk.